Well, if you aren't aware what FOMO is or that it's been used in commercials, um, I mostly think about the Verizon commercials. There's the most recent one of the Houston Texan player, J.J. Watt, is that his name? At a middle school dance, and he's telling this middle school teacher, like, you know, you're missing the big game. You're here at this middle school dance chaperoning, and it's this super awkward middle school dance situation. And she wishes she was home watching the game, but now she cannot miss out because she can watch it on her phone while the middle school dance is going on. And that's kind of just the theme with FOMO in general is, you know, uh, we have this fear of missing out technologically, but now that technology is bettering itself more and more, despite the fact that the opportunities continue to grow and our life options continue to expand, we still can do as much of them as we want because we have these devices or whatever. And I thought about that too with these talks because that's why we're here. That's, yeah, that's why you're here, exactly. And you can listen to the other talks when you get home because we're recording them all. So you're not going to miss out. Um, but most of that has to do with when people talk about FOMO as a disorder, it has to do with people's inability to sit still anymore because there's always something they could be doing. Whether that's, you know, they see something on Facebook or they see something on uh, Twitter that a friend is up to. There's always some new trending thing to be following that it's going to drive you nuts if you don't do it or if you don't tweet it out or if you don't whatever it. And it's crazy making, but it's also addictive. And the more we, the more we feel the impulse to not miss out, um, the more we fill our schedules with things that maybe don't even matter to us, but we just need that stimulus. So. I'm going to read you this most recent, I think it was actually about a month ago in Psychology Today. It's called Electric Shock and American Dissatisfaction. It's a study that <clears throat> just came out. I just read about a study published in Science, the magazine. In a series of experiments, Americans of varied backgrounds whose ages ranged from young adults to 77, were asked to spend 15 minutes alone in a room doing nothing but sitting and thinking. They found the challenge difficult and unpleasant. Some, more males but also females, found sitting alone with their thoughts so aversive that offered the choice they chose to accept a, parenthetical mild, electric shock rather than pass the time alone doing nothing. Remember, the challenge was just 15 minutes long, but no cell phones, music, video games, books, or gadgets were allowed. Many of us, it seems, don't know how to enjoy a bit of quiet time with ourselves. We so need constant stimulation that, in a pinch, even electric shock will do. It's negative stimulation, but at least it's stimulation. So, yeah, there's this feeling that we need this sort of technological stimulation, but it's not just about technology. It's, it's more that technology has made this, like, this problem. It's allowed a stronger conduit for this problem to, to grow in us. So 
Rather than us just fearing missing out when we're sitting at home alone, we can do it with our friends all the time while under the sort of the auspices of being connected. Um, so it's not just about technology and us not having the ability to sit in a room alone, but it's about potential. You know, it's, it's any time you think about potential. What could I be doing right now? Or what should I have done when I had the chance to, you know, take the right or the left fork in the road? And I chose the left, but what would my life have looked like had I gone in the other direction? And it begins to cloud the way we think about our lives. Uh, every moment is sort of like a glimpse back at what we chose to do uh, or didn't choose to do. And so we've quoted this quite a bit on Mockingbird, uh, but this is called Missing Out in Praise of the Unlived Life by Adam Phillips. And he's a psychoanalyst and um, counselor and kind of a philosopher, sort of couch philosopher, but um, he has a lot of good things to say about sort of this idea of missing out and what it says about who we are um, anyways. I'm just going to read a little bit. So in our daily frustrations... Our lives become an elegy to the needs unmet and the desires sacrificed, possibilities refused and roads not taken. The myth of our potential can make of our lives a perpetual falling short, a continual and continuing loss, a sustained and sometimes sustaining rage. We have an abiding sense, however obscure, that the lives we do lead are informed by the lives that escaped us, that our lives are defined by loss, but loss of what might have been, loss, that is, of things never experienced. And then for a while he talks about <clears throat> sort of religious faith, and he's not a Christian, and he's, he's not a believer at all, but he says that when we believed, when we believed in an afterlife, we could sort of throw the missed lives into the wind because, like, it's going to get better in the end after we die anyways. But he says now that we have modernized and we don't all believe this anymore, it all needs to be grabbed at now. <clears throat> so this is what he says. Once the next life, the better life, the fuller life, has to be in this one, we have a considerable task on our hands. Now someone is asking us not only to survive, but to flourish. Not simply or solely to be good, but to make the most of our lives. It is quite a different kind of command. The story our lives become, the story, the story our lives, the story of our lives becomes the story of the lives we were prevented from living. And so that idea of our lives being a picture actually of the lives that we've left behind or the, the lives that missed us, the girl that got away or the job that just didn't fulfill us or uh, the job that we chose and we stuck with and now we're looking back on it and thinking, what if? That that actually informs more of who we are than we think and that also Jesus had quite a bit to say about that. So I want to look at some of his parables 
and I also want to look at sort of a picture that I want to start with a picture of who we are before we li we listen to these parables. So you know this; it's the rich young ruler, Matthew 19. Um, I was going to bring Bibles from the sanctuary, but I realized there's no Bibles in that sanctuary. It's uh, classic Episcopal Church. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is the rich young ruler. And I, I, I want to think about him as sort of the consummate man missing out or woman missing out. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. And so that question, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? And then the answer is kind of the optimal wish that we have now. You know, fear of missing out mainly has to do with confusion. We're stuck at a fork in the road and we wish we knew which direction to take. Or we took a direction and we're looking back at the direction we took and we're thinking, man, maybe I was supposed to go the other way. Or I know I was supposed to go the other way and I didn't. And yet here Jesus says, Here's what you need to do, you know, like throw it all away and follow me. And he goes away sad because it's the option that he just can't do. You know, he has so many possessions. He has so many ideas for what his life could be that surrendering them uh, is, is too difficult to bear. So I was thinking about FOMO and missing out and... You know, obviously when we feel FOMO, whether we call it that or not, it's, it's felt in the present, but it's actually sort of an anti-present. You know, like we are, we're sitting there thinking um, and resenting the situation we're in, but our resentment is either pointed in the past um, with regret with something that we wish had gone one way and didn't go that way, or with a decision that we made that we wish we hadn't made, or it's pointed towards the future with anxiety, with fear of uh, kind of what Zimmerman was saying in his talk, that we have these, these fears of worst-case scenarios that take up most of our mental thought. You know, We think about these things, and regardless of whether or not they're based in any truth, that's, that's where we map our lives from. And so I, I, I thought about FOMO not just in this, what am I going to do next, but also what have I done? Uh, regret and anxiety. So I kind of want to split it up that way. I've got a parable for each, the past and the future. 
And then I want to talk about um, sort of Jesus' way of mediating those two or, or where he comes to speak to us in the present. So first, let's, let's do the past, um, regret. And I want to play a short clip from This American Life. Any listeners? All right. So this is an older one. He's talking about his, his mother, Ira Glass, is talking about his mother being on her deathbed and sort of the conversations that happened and then the conversations that he wished had happened. This past fall, my mom was dying. And I had this experience that I bring up here only because I think it is so common. She and I were in different cities and I would go to see her most weekends when she got sick. It was pretty clear she didn't have a lot of time left. And I kept thinking, we should be having these really big conversations. And I don't even know what it is that I wanted to talk about. It just seemed like anything that we needed to say to each other, we'd better say now before it was too late. But truthfully, it wasn't like we had big issues that needed to be resolving or anything like that. All that stuff had been done years ago. And so I would go, and mostly what she wanted was just company, you know? So we'd watch old movies, and we'd watch TV, and we'd play little cards and chat about whatever small thing would come up. And at one level, you know, this was fine. It was completely fine, it was fine. And like I say, it was what she wanted, you know? But at another level, I would sit there, like intermittently and secretly, very anxious that I was wasting this time. That in six months or two years or ten years, I was going to look back and I was going to feel sorry that we had never talked about. Yeah, like I don't even know, like, like what we hadn't talked about. Like, like I don't know, like, like who was her best friend in junior high school or what her house was like when she was a little girl. And my, my I have a friend whose father died not too long ago, who told me, well, if nothing else, I should use this time to just ask all the questions about all those little stories that I think I might want to know someday, you know? And we did talk about some of that stuff. There were some old stories that I never really had straight that now I know. And there were a couple of times, sitting on the couch in the middle of some long afternoon, where I asked my mom, you know, is there anything that that you want to talk about? Is there anything that we need to talk about, anything we need to you know, get resolved or that we need to discuss. And um, she asked me why in my 20s, pretty much through my entire 20s, I was so distant from the family. And I asked her um, about all the years that she and my dad completely disapproved of my career in public radio. And we talked about these things. We talked about them, I would say, for like, I want to say like a total of, I don't know, three minutes. And that kind of pretty much exhausted his subjects. And then we like moved on to the next thing. And that was that. Since she died, she died in October, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. I keep waiting for the day that I'm going to be talking to somebody or reading something or watching TV, and suddenly I realize something that I want to ask my mom about. That suddenly I realize what we should have talked about during that stretch of all those weeks, what I should have said back then. I, I know it's going to happen, and the only question is, is it gonna to be tomorrow, you know? Or is it gonna be the next day? Or is it gonna be next month? Or is it gonna be next year? 
I mean, I know that, that people have this kind of feeling about, about the living also, you know what I mean? They have this feeling about their living friends and relatives, you know, that they wish that they could go back and have do-overs and say something better or say the thing that it took them a really long time to figure out needed to be said. And um, in my experience, maybe, maybe I'm unusual, but in my experience, people almost never go back to do that, even when the people are alive. They never go back and, and, and straighten it out and say it. Well, today on our radio program, we have stories about what it would mean to actually go back, what it would mean to finally say everything that you should have said at the time, but that most people never, ever do. We make it. Okay, I'm going to stop there. But if you want to, that's uh, the episode called What I Should Have Said. It's, it's pretty good. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's, it's an interesting picture of regret, not just that he feels that he should have said something, more profound or that there should have been some last great connection before his mom passed but also the feeling of dread that regret is gonna be happening you know and it reminded me there I have a friend uh, back home in Virginia who is currently finishing law school and is also um, thinking about seminary and and has sort of quietly thought about seminary uh, despite parental expectations, his own thoughts for his life and how it should be, and, um, and sort of caught in between this passionate desire to maybe go into the priesthood um, and go to law school was brought together by this call uh, that he received from the top-tier law firm in New York that he was both hoping he would get a call from and hope never called him back, you know? And they called back and they said, you have until Wednesday to make a decision. And talking to him about that, that period of decision-making, it was like he was looking forward to his regret. You know, he was like, I know this train is heading in a direction and I'm on it and I'm worried that I'm going to be 50 years old and I'm going to look back and think I didn't get off you know but I also feel like I can't get off and we all know that feeling in one way or another whether it's career or relationships um, there's this New York Times piece that came out in 2011 what's your biggest regret and it's another study and I'm just going to read a little bit and see if see it where you re relate here. But uh, the most common regret involved romance, with nearly one in five respondents telling a story of a missed love connection. The second most common regret involved family issues, with about 16% of respondents expressing regret about a family squabble or having been unkind to a sibling or a child. Other top regrets involved education. I should have gone to this school, or I wish I hadn't gone to this school, and I wish I had just not gone to school. Uh, career, kind of what I was just talking about, um, taking the wrong fork in the road, feeling like your job has led you to this malaise. Money issues. If only I had just sold out. I, I told myself I wasn't going to sell out, and kept on with the rock band, but man, if I was just working in a cubicle right now, I'd actually, you know, not be pulling my hair out. Um, 
parenting mistakes, uh, health regrets. And she goes on to say, no pattern emerged on the reasons for regret. Just as many respondents expressed regret for something they had done as those who felt regret for something they had not done. However, people whose regrets involved something they didn't do or a missed opportunity were more likely to hold on to the regret over time. I thought that was interesting. The longer ago regrets tend to focus on lost opportunities, things you could have done or should have done different, said Dr. Rose. More recent regrets tend to focus on things you did do that you wish you could take back. Uh, and so thinking about this idea of regret, um, Dave Zoll, my boss, uh, had, has just preached a sermon on regret that I think speaks a lot to this particular conundrum. And, and the parable he used was a, was a parable that I had not really ever thought about in terms of regret. And so um, I'm going to read it. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which is kind of that classic story of, um, you know, the workers show up late and they get paid the same amount as the ones who've been there all day. And so you can just imagine how pissed off the people who've worked all day are. Um, but it's such a beautiful picture of grace and unmerited favor. But try to think about it in terms of regret as I read this. Um, it's Matthew 20 if you do have a Bible. No worries if you don't. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out about nine o'clock. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call them in and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So, yeah, I, I think that obviously the the main picture that, that sticks to your mind is that picture of just generosity and the feeling of entitlement from that we so we know so well 
uh, being the ones who have, you know, just toiled all day. And we feel entitled to the bitterness uh, that, that feels so unfair. Um, and the other picture that we're given is that reward comes not by output. You know, if, if, we're, if we're picturing this by output, obviously the people that have been there all day have, they've harvested more grapes and um, toiled longer. And if that's what it's about, then they deserve more money. But that's not the picture that we're given of the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's generosity given not by output, but by presence, just by being there. And so, um, afterwards, I want to hear what you guys think about regret, but something that came to mind for me was that it seems also like this is a parable for those who just show up late, who missed the boat, you know, who didn't come for the first pickup, and so they've been idling around because they're sitting there with nothing to do. They, they've, they've missed it. They had the great opportunity, and it pass them by, and so now they're sitting there thinking, well, there's another way I, I just sort of missed out. And the nature of the kingdom is that it keeps coming back. There's a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And <clears throat> and not that there's some sort of um, penalty for that happening, but but that you're accepted just as much as the ones who got picked up in the beginning. And that's offensive. That's just not... Um, that's not good news for the ones who showed up early. But it is for those of us who have regrets, for those who feel like we have missed out. Okay, now on to the future. So past, we feel this regret. FOMO is regret. FOMO is missing out the feeling that we haven't actually um, made the right choices. But anxiety is the picture of our fear of the future. And so I'm going to play a little uh, bit from Portlandia. Does anybody watch Portlandia? And this is from the new season. And the, the two main actors, Carrie and Fred, are um, ghosts in a haunted house. But it's not like you think. It's a very Portland haunted house. And um, it haunts people by confusion. It, it haunts them by sort of rendering anxiety. So I'll let you I'll let you figure it out. Also Kirsten Dunst is in this, which is kind of funny. Dear Kim, I was ever so looking forward to spending the summer with you in Portland. However, I recently became very ill and have had to seek refuge at the Ferndale Healing and Retreat Center. I entrust you with the house. The keys are under the mat. Feel free to take any room of your choosing. Help yourself to anything in the kitchen. And there's cable TV in the bedroom upstairs. Have fun this summer. Love, Aunt Jane. Standing 
We heard it. On NPR. Overrated. They did a recent study. I read it in the New York Times. I read an article. You're supposed to exercise first thing in the morning. No, no. That's that's because it's not effective. You need to do it at night. You should read up on it. It's a myth that drinking water when you exercise is good for you. You can drown in electrolytes. Atlantic Monthly, June 12th, 2011. No, no. The electrolytes might be good for you. Too many electrolytes in your body can literally... You can never have enough electrolytes. Yes, you can. You, you can. can. Answer the phone. Answer the phone. You can't drown in electrolytes. Absolutely, you can. Hello? 732 k 6 Eugene? Is that you? 732K6. Uh, uh, Eugene? Are you okay? Lack of sleep. No! No! Don't confuse me! Light bulbs are out for your eyes. Stop it! The tusk sound is bad for your teeth. teeth. What? Wow. It's too bad. She had a good life. Oh, hey. Hey. How are you doing? Can I try it out now? Because I'm a ghost now, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, go ahead. All right. Um, drinking too much fruit juice can lead to diabetes. Uh, I mean, you, you want a reference. I, I read it, you know, I just read or... Yeah. Oh. Like kind of a vague source. Okay, I feel like I can, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go inside. You cold? I'm freezing. Okay. <laughs> Probably go through the wall. All right. It's nice to meet you. You too. <laughs> it's actually kind of scary too, you know? Okay. <clears throat> So, yeah, I mean, yeah, a couple dies from not being able to decide what's good or bad from them. And it's funny because it's true, and it's also true that it's not these, like, huge transcendental forks in the roads where we're like, oh, like, what is, what is my purpose in life? But it's also like, do I go for a run right now or... Do I just chill because I haven't sat on the couch all week long and I need to just sit? And we have these inner critics that are constantly bartering back and forth and it's exhausting in and of itself. But we have this myth of sort of the self-actualized me that's gonna, that's gonna reach the goal if you make the right choices. I mean, kind of like what Aaron was just saying, this picture of control is is always progress to the finish line. And if those choices um, are the right choices, then we're going to get there. And if those choices are the wrong choices, then we're not. 
And so looking back on those choices, we feel regret, but looking forward into the future, our present is completely um, killed because of of what we're thinking about in, in, in sort of the perspective future. Um, and you have a lot of different um, symptoms here. I mean, some people uh, really have a hard time procrastinating, you know, that you, you feel like, well, uh, you know, this talk needs to get written, but I need to be in the right space, so I, I should probably just make a cup of coffee and then I have three cups of coffee and I feel like too wired to write so I need to go for a run to sort of counteract the coffee and all of these minute decisions end up making you completely paralyzed you know all these choices end up making you feel uh, like you have nowhere to turn and this is this is true for everyone but it is pretty like pretty specifically true also to the 20 somethings today you know and um, there's a, there's another book that we have read quite a bit from um, from Sally Coslow she's uh, she's actually a fiction writer but wrote sort of a memoir slash uh, sociology study because her son came back after college and lived at home and just would not leave so that sort of failure to launch uh, conundrum, but her book is called um, Slouching Toward Adulthood, and it's kind of this really depressing look at where people like me are headed, uh, because we don't have, you know, self-control and all this, but her diagnosis is really good, so this is Sally Coslow. She's talking about choices. <clears throat> Seemingly limitless possibility paralyzes us a dilemma that social psychologist Sheena Iyengar from Columbia University School of Business refers to as the paradox of choice. In one experiment, Dr. Iyengar showed how shoppers who chose from more options were less happy with their purchases than those with more limited options. When faced, this is Iyengar, when faced with two dozen varieties of jam in a grocery store, for example, or lots of investment options for their pension plan, people often chose arbitrarily to walk away without making any choice at all, rather than labor to make a reasoned choice. A jam is the state in which many adultescents, that's what she calls us, adultescents, instead of adults. We are, we are adults, but we're also adolescents. Adultescents find themselves at graduation feeling their lives are lousy with choices after they've been handed their bachelor's degrees. They hear the echo of their parents' trope wishing them Godspeed. Find your passion. The money will follow. You can be anything you want to be. Of course it helps that they've heard these mantras all their lives. By the time the diploma ink dries, many recent graduates begin to embrace the idea of life being one infinite friendlies menu. Friendlies is like Applebee's. Um, just one more little bit. And this is a student that she interviews. We live better than kings, Ari Siegel, a recent graduate of the University of Michigan, exclaims. That is assuming you have some modest uh, money at your disposal. You can book a flight anywhere in the world online and be there the next day 
You can function as an anthropologist, seeing things from a lot of different angles. Living out, the sun also rises. Travel is an escape. Although, he adds when he catches his breath, the overwhelming amount of choice can create a person who doesn't have much of his own identity. So, what she's getting at is, for my generation, it seems like we, we grew up in this childhood of affirmation. You know, there was all of this, like, hoorah, you can do it, gold star, sticker, like, you're the best. Dream, dream and you will succeed. And all of that affirmation ends up ballooning into these choices after high school and college. And all of these choices, there, there ought to be a right one in the midst of them, right? And because there must be a right one amidst the myriad choices that are all pretty good choices, it's hard to choose one. And so we go back home and live with mom and dad. And um, that is actually more common than maybe you think. Um, and so I want to think about this idea of the paralysis of being future-oriented and, um, with the parable of the rich fool, which is Luke 12. And I'm going to read that, read one more, and then I want to hear from you guys. All right, so this is Luke 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. (laughs) But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Read also abundance of options or abundance of choices or... um, Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Uh, Again, I mean, it screams what Aaron just said about control, and um, and also what we're saying here about self-actualization, you know, that um, we believe if the right choice is made, that there will be some omega point, this this like finished product that before we die, we will arrive at and think, it's been pretty good. Now I can just sit, you know, in the success that I am and enjoy. And it just doesn't work that way. And instead, that that orientation towards the future completely pulls you from the present. You know, you spend so much time building these storehouses that you're actually forgetting, you know, to take your kid to school or whatever. So it's not just the enemy of the present, but this future orientation kind of, 
again, what Aaron was saying is that it's also an enemy of faith. It's an enemy to risk. Um, because if we're, if we're constantly focused on um, sort of the end destination, uh, we're not actually trusting God. We're focused more on controlling what we have and, and moving it forward. So what do we do is kind of where I'm left, you know? If I'm sitting in this moment and I'm in the grocery store and I see 18 different kinds of grape jam and I can't decide which one is the right one and I start to have a panic attack and then I start thinking about all the past regrets I have, what does that person do, you know? And, you know, it's one thing to say, well, Jesus doesn't like you to think in sort of future-oriented language, and he also doesn't like you to, you know, hone in on your regrets all the time because no one likes to live that way. But what do we do with the present? And I'm still trying to figure this out, too. So I'm going to read this parable. It's the wheat and the tares, and, um, and then let's talk. So this is Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat also with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So, yeah, what does that have to do with the present moment and that aisle filled with different kinds of grape jam? Well, what I'm thinking is, you know, we have the good and we have the bad. And the landowner tells the slave not to pluck it up because in your confusion, you may choose the wrong thing. And in your confusion, you may actually... um, let go of something that, that actually is supposed to happen, even though right now it looks like weeds. And to me, that's just this beautiful picture of passivity, of, of allowing um, the, the present moment to be a conglomeration of regrets and, um, and options that you don't know which direction to take, and that the real sorting is God's work and not ours. So um, I think that frees us up, too, to think, to sort of view our regrets in light of, uh, yeah, I do regret that, and thanks be to God, I'm still breathing today, you know?